Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, Vice President of the club and founder of Climate One, a club initiative that convenes leaders from business, government, and civil society to advance solutions to global warming. Our distinguished guest today is Eric Schmidt, Chairman and CEO of Google. In 2001, Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin recruited Eric from Novell, where he led that company's strategic planning, management, and technology development as chairman and CEO. Along with Google's two founders, Eric shares responsibility for the juggernaut's day-to-day operations. Prior to his appointment at Novell, Eric was chief technology officer at Sun Microsystems, where he led the development of the Java programming language. He previously held positions at the famed Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, Xerox Park, and Bell Laboratories. He holds a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from Princeton University and a PhD in computer science from the University of California, Berkeley. In 2006, Eric was elected to the National Academy of Engineering, and last year he was inducted to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences as a fellow. As part of his community work, he serves as chairman of the board of directors of the New America Foundation. Now, please join me in welcoming Eric Schmidt to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you very much, Greg. Okay. Thank you all for coming. When I, uh, when I was at Berkeley and I was commuting to Xerox, it's 30 years ago, I listened every day to a radio show from this club. And it was the place in the world where the most interesting conversations occurred. And 30 years later, it is a tremendous honor for me to be here as part of this extraordinary community and phenomena that's been with us for many, many decades. So thank you very much. I, I wanted to talk about the problems of the world. And it just seems to me that we have this huge crisis in Washington right now. We've all been reading about it. And there's been no inaction. There's been no action. How do we get here? It's a complete system failure. And by the way, I'm not talking about the financial crisis, right? But I have a solution. The government on Friday is going to pass a bill, most likely, that will cost us $700 billion. And we know as citizens to add a few dollars to that, so about a trillion dollars. I have a plan that will make all that money back. So I'm now in favor of the bill. Because we as citizens can give the government that money, and we're going to make it back. Because as part of this, why don't we get a little excited about getting the government to deal with the real problems in the world? We have seen a total and complete failure of leadership in the political parties of the United States around something that is fundamentally in front of us. It's a fundamental challenge. It's an issue for us. It shows to me a lack of understanding of technology and opportunity. And it also shows me, shows me an under, a lack of understanding 
of global alliances and how people work together. And the time is now. And obviously what I'm talking about is not climate change. I'm talking about rebuilding the energy infrastructure of the United States. And by the way, if we do it, we can probably do it everywhere else because the math works for them too. So if you think about it, we have an opportunity. The government, right, after they finish bailing out the banks, which will be Friday, right, which has occurred because people are afraid, so fear drives behavior, the government has an opportunity to do a stimulus package because we're going to have a recession, right? That's sort of the next step in the taxonomy of business cycles. Maybe we will, maybe we won't, but something's going to happen. So the government's going to go and give a lot of money to a lot of people. So instead of giving it to the usual suspects, why don't we use the money, and by the way, I don't need a trillion dollars. Why don't we use that money to solve once and for all all the things that we debate? Okay, energy security, right? High oil prices. A lack of jobs, especially in rural areas. A lack of technology investment a lack of export industries. Oh, and by the way, we can also solve climate change at exactly the same time. In one step, set of steps. And that's what I want to talk about. You know, if you think about it, the conservatives argue, well, this is going to drive up costs. And the liberals say, well, you have to bear the costs. But in fact, the truth is that saving fuel is cheaper than buying it and that you make money when you do this the right way and if you take the right amount of time looking at it. And that's what is, to me, so phenomenal about the analysis that Google has done. And we're not the first, and we won't be the last. But part of, I think, our mission is to talk plainly about what the opportunity is. You know, if you look, global oil consumption is going to grow 40% by 2030. Electricity, global electricity demand is doubling by 2030. Even faster in developing nations, China electricity demand is growing at more than twice the rest of the world. We all know about coal plants every week and all that kind of stuff in China and the pollution and all that that we're encountering. And so how do we supply this demand? Well, we're paying for it. We pay for it in high gas prices, in national security. There's a war which had something to do with oil. Um, greenhouse gases, we all understand the significance there. 37 countries will add coal-fired power plants in the next five years. I mean, I've got statistic after statistic on this. And you know, what's funny is that you hear the arguments, clean coal, well, that's an oxymoron. Right? Right? So I was thinking, it's a little bit like a safe bomb, right? Or, or a limited nuclear war, right? It's good that we clean the particulates off of coal but it doesn't make it any less dangerous to the longer-term issues. So I am optimistic, because I think if you view this problem, and I'm a business person, if you look at this as a business, the opportunity before us solves a whole bunch of problems at the same time. And the ones that people really care about is the, ones, the abstract ones that we all care about. Jobs, employment, growth, oil prices, and so forth. You know, what happened in my case was I heard, you know, I was at one of these talks, and I heard, well, 40% of climate emissions occur from buildings. And I thought, well, I'm in charge of a lot of buildings. <laughs> Maybe I should do something. So we called everybody together, and we said, well, OK, what can you do? What can you do? And they said, well, we can spend a million dollars. And I said, what would you do? They said, well, the payback is oh, nine months. OK, let's go through this again. You said a million dollars, and the payback is nine months. So why haven't you done this? Oh, we didn't think about it. OK, well, why don't you do it? Oh, good, OK. 
Eventually, we did about, about actually a plan for about $5 million with a payback of two and a half million, or two, sorry, two and a half years. And by the way, that was before prices doubled. And one of the most bizarre things about efficiency in these kinds of savings is that, that because the prices remain low, but the competitive prices remain high, the savings increase over time. They accrue. They get larger and larger and larger. So what happens, of course, is everybody says, oh, well, you know, it's a year or two, and I can't afford it. We can afford it. Anybody here planning on dying in the next couple of years? Let's take, a, let's take at least a personal lifetime view. I tend to be here for the next 22 years, right? Maybe longer, <laughs> okay? So if you take the point that we're going to take a longer-term view, the math works. So eventually, we put together a, a solar panel, which at the time was 1.6 megawatts, the largest uh, corporate solar. And by the way, this is great, because it provides shade for the cars. You build carports, put solar panels on it, and so forth. And we take about 10 or 20% of our energy off, off the grid. I was very proud that that was our largest investment. It turns out that the largest one of these, and it turns out Applied Materials has just announced an even larger one. So this is a race where we're happy to lose. And in fact, Ontario, Toyota just announced one which is 50% even higher than that. This is great. So let's see if we can get this bigger and bigger and bigger. People making the right business decision within their companies because they're business people. And they can do the math. So if you go back to this issue of failure political leadership, the uncertainty around the, the, the um, renewable tax credit, it expires every year. So basically, everyone spends this game, right? We're going to have this problem next year, guys. And it's going to be worse and worse and worse. Why don't we fix that? A failure of political leadership. It's expired 17 times in the last 20 years. Amazing. And these tax credits are needed because remember what they're doing is they're stimulating the investments against opportunities, other choices, that have had 50 years of development, maturity, federal, state, and local subsidies. So it makes sense, at least for a while, to favor them a little bit. So we've been working on a plan to try to solve this problem. And let's talk numbers. In studying this, we looked at some other plans. Vice President Gore, who's a, a hero, I think, to many of us, certainly to me, uh, announced a plan in July, which does what I'm talking about in actually less time, but using different economics, some different costs, and doesn't involve some transportation thing. That's pretty good. T. Boone Pickens has announced a plan. Different set of assumptions, different set of cost structures. All of these things are inspectable by each of you on the web. Ours are all out there. See if you like it. See if it makes sense. If you don't like ours, make your own. The point is, the numbers add. So, in, so all of these plans fundamentally rep, recognize that renewables, and in particular, solar, solar, solar thermal in particular with storage, geothermal, wind, solar voltaics, biomass, and so forth, when combined with the right set of incentives and so forth, really do pencil out correctly. So why, why, why is Google doing this? Well, it's important to our business, because we're a large consumer of electricity. And we're going to likely to consume more. And we want the prices to go down. So it's reasonable for us to do this. And indeed, we've been investing strategically with our own renewable electricity less than, uh, renewable energy less than coal initiative, which I'll talk about in, in a little bit. So in this scenario, right, the scenario of action and opportunity, we think that this is going to be massively expensive. Okay? How massive? Okay. Oh, 
four, four and a half trillion dollars over 22 years. By the way, which is less than the payment next week in the bailout, but that's a separate discussion. So you go, God, boy, this guy must be absolutely mad. But that's a separate discussion. The savings, $5.5 trillion. Okay, so let's go through that again. You spend money and you make money. That's sort of what I do. We actually end up making money because of the efficiencies that we're assuming. And you get those efficiencies, by the way, by using more gas-efficient cars, which are on their way. You get those efficiencies by using less expensive electricity, which is on its way. You get that, some of that savings by avoiding building the incredibly expensive plants that you no longer need. So the savings are real. And the costs are real too, by the way. My point here is that in this math, it's cheaper to fix global warming than to ignore it, which makes no sense to anybody. It's like, don't we normally ignore these things? It's been our practice for a year. It's actually cheaper to just fix it. Let's take this one off the table. We can work on something else. Lots of other things to work on. Now, you sit there and you go, okay, well, that's pretty good. What about jobs? Well, we have a problem with employment in our country, and we have a particular problem with high-wage manufacturing jobs that are high-skilled. This proposal generates a million of them. And by the way, where are they? In rural areas where the biggest problems are and where the supply of labor is there, but the jobs are not. Okay, so let's put that one to bed. So you, if you think this is a jobs program, I love it. High-paying American jobs, people who pay taxes and who currently are suffering through, through, through some pretty difficult times. And by the way, where are they? They're in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, the Gulf Coast, Wyoming, Texas, you know, rural Texas, et cetera. Now, there's lots and lots of room for in, of innovation. I mean, General Electric, for example, got into the wind turbine business in 2003 when they bought a bankrupt business, which is now a $7 billion business for them. Now, how do you do this? Well, you start with energy efficiency. And I know that's boring, you know, they taught that in school and so forth. The payback from energy efficiency is enormous. The way, the way regulators work it and the way utilities work is they'll pay you one to three cents a kilowatt hour to avoid having to build the plant from your perspective if you, in fact, insulate your homes. And there's lots and lots of, there's lots and lots of ways, but the quickest way to solve this problem is actually to use more efficiency. And there's plenty of technologies around inefficiency. And what's interesting about compounding is that the insulation that you put in your home fundamentally never wears out, but the heater does. So if you look at it on a life cycle cost perspective, the savings compound even greater. And we, never, we always ignore this because it's a three-year or five-year thing. You're going to be in your house for a long time because we're going to be alive for a long time now. Consumers, by the way, will change their behavior with better measurement. Um, it's, it has to do with, you know, you have no idea what's happening in your house. In my case, what happened, I decided to measure this, measure what's happening in my house. Uh, and so eventually I figured out that there were these things in the basement called fans. And so here I am, and I'm crawling on the floor, and I'm listening, and I eventually find them, and I discover I can't even access them to turn them off using power all the time. So my point here is that a little bit of detective work and paying attention, there's a lot of interesting studies here. The most, the most interesting ones all have to do with consumer behavior. The average consumer behavior savings is about 10% when you monitor these things. 
based on the studies that we've seen. We had one engineer manage to save 44%. Um, he figured out it was his 20-year-old refrigerator. That's kind of a no-brainer. He's at Google, you know, to pay attention. High energy use at night because his computers are all left on. Simple stuff. He just turned them off. No big deal. And what's interesting is that California has been a leader in this, and I want to take a lot of credit, and there's some people in the room who deserve a lot of credit because of the changes in regulation where they change the utility so the utility is organized around basically re return on investment as opposed to profitability. So their incentives are now in alignment with the right strategy from a global perspective. Other states are now copying that, but not all of them. And that's another thing that need to get fixed pretty quick. So when you look at it from a business perspective, that's consumers, look at it as a business perspective, the average company separates out the computer budget, for example, the capital budget, and then the operating budget. Well, that's a mistake. Because you want to look at the total life cycle. You have the procurement cycle, you have the operating cycle, and then you eventually have the disposition cycle. At Google, for example, we have one person who's in charge of that whole life cycle from a data center perspective, and they're trying to manage costs. So if the accounting is done right, and if businesses look at it, then they look at the total cost, so what they'll discover is that there's plenty of times when, and many corporations are in fact rel relatively flush with cash right now. You wouldn't know it from the press, but it's really true, so study it a bit. Uh, spend the money now to invest in the capital and the payback accrues to their shareholders and earnings over the many years. So, so another obvious example is a computer equipment. Think about the amount of computers. You know, what are those things doing? Right? They're like running Windows, right? You know, sitting there over and over again doing Windows. Uh, why don't we have them doing something useful like being turned off? Uh, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry, that was a mistake. So anyway, we've done a bunch of things, climate savers, computing initiatives, and so forth to try to, to try to handle all of that. You know, government, building code standards are understood as important. Commercial buildings are built to be leased, so the incentives are not in alignment with respect to conservation. Minimize the construction cost rather than minimize the life cycle cost of the building. So somebody else bears the cost. And in, when you build these complex systems involving smart people, you have to think about the totality of the, it's called sort of life cycle engineering. It's easy enough, change the building codes to reflect the true cost. All of a sudden, developers who are very, very clever people will immediately do the right thing, as opposed to not doing the right thing because incentives are wrong. You know, the, the Title 24 work that was done here in, in California is very heroic. But again, it's not true everywhere. It needs to be national and it needs to be important. The number that we came up with was $56 billion in electricity and natural gas costs since 1978. And by the way, I, I want to talk about this because you sit there and you go, oh, 10%, you know, no big deal. Remember that the cost of an electricity generation system is determined by its peak cost, not its average cost. Because the peak cost is where they have to put in the most expensive sources of, income, of, of power. So if you can reduce your, your power usage, especially at peak times, by 10%, it has a huge flowback in terms of the impact that it will have on the network and on the cost and the structure of the utility industry. So from our perspective, we look at this and we go, look, guys, here's what we want to do. We want to focus on three technologies. Renewable, right? Obviously, things we'll have forever. And by the way, we're not running out of it. The sun, not going away anytime soon. You get the idea. What's interesting, by the way, is when you look at those and then you compare them, for example, to nuclear, which in our model we simply assume is relatively constant, the nuclear cost, just on a cost basis, doesn't cost out. And I'm ignoring the strategic questions and the political arguments and so forth. It's just, it's just cheaper to invest. It's funny that I was listening to one of these radio shows where they said, well, you know, these people say we should use wind and solar instead of nuclear. Yes. <laughs> because they're cheaper. 
Okay. It's like money. <laughs> okay, it's like real simple. You know, so if you end up with a power architecture which is more distributed and uses more cogeneration, which is how these systems are really developing, you end up with a very renewable and reliable grid. And in the case of wind, wind is, uh, is now approaching the cost of traditional power, somewhere around eight, nine cents a kilowatt hour versus five or six. And with subsidies, it gets very, very close. They're sold out for years. I tried to buy one. I figured, you know, let me buy one. You see the big thing, put it in the backyard. And you have to wait, you have to wait two or three years. They're so popular because the math works. I want to talk a little bit about what happens when you have these large farms, but the point is, it's clearly there. It's very much mainstream. Solar thermal, you know, people talk about solar as photovoltaic, but the real innovations are now going in solar thermal. What it is is it's this mirror that you use to heat up a oil that, you, that then turns a turbine, and you go, wow. Well, it looks very James Bondian, so it's really neat to visit these things. And the deserts of California are being populated by these enhanced, by, by these essentially um, uh, solar, solar thermal approaches. They're going to get there, and they're going to get there in the next year or two. The, the numbers are phenomenal. They're more than uh, 3,100 3, megawatts expected to come online in the next three years. So these are big, big numbers. That's like a couple of San Francisco's. Um, an interesting statistic is if you take a 100-mile by 100-mile area of the southwest and you sort of did all of this, it could power the whole U.S. So we know it's there. Now, enhanced geothermal is where you take a liquid, typically say water, and you put it into the ground and you bring it back up because it comes back hot because it's hot below the earth, right? Remember all of this? Turns a turbine, send it back down again. The efficiencies of that system are now getting to the point where in the next couple of years it's going to become a mainstream technology. And by the way, we don't run out of the heat in the, in the earth. You, know, you can do that over and over again. It's still hot down there. That's where the volcanoes are, right? It's very, very, very hot, and we're not going to run out in our lifetimes. Furthermore, it's baseload because it's always hot, whereas the other ones come on and off, obviously. So what you do is you basically drill. Another great thing because we know lots about drilling, right? Something good for drilling? Drill for heat, which is, of course, where Google would drill. And of course, the government needs to help here with R&D funding and so forth to get these things going on. They the stuff has not been increased in many, many years. And you could have various forms of portfolio standards and so forth. And we'll ultimately, as in our society, put a price on carbon, whether it's a carbon tax, but of course that is the wrong name, or some form of cap and trade system because of the threat of global, global warming and climate change. It's clearly coming. So you'd be foolish to implement systems which will ultimately be highly taxed. You're much better off anticipating those and doing the right thing. Another thing that's a problem in this is thinking about cars. If, if half is roughly power and power generation, the other one is cars. Well, it's very interesting that there is a tremendous new set of things involving electricity in cars. It's cheaper to operate a car on, on electricity than gasoline. Um, even if you add the cost premium for the, the battery cost today, it ends up being roughly even. But of course, batteries are declining in their cost as technology improves. Tremendous amount of investment there. So what we think is going to happen is people are going to have plug-in cars. And in our model, we assume roughly a third of the cars on the road will be plug-ins of one kind or another. Um, we, Google, are doing a small test on hybrids where we've got Prius and, and Ford Escape conversions. And so if you're confused by this, what happens is you take the car and you add an extra battery such that for normal driving, it just uses the battery. So if it runs out of battery, then the engine comes on. And for most driving, that's sufficient. 
and then you charge the car using smart meters, which I'll come back in a sec, at a time when energy supply is plentiful and prices are low. So it's very important that you have, that you have a network of grid, which I'll come back to, where the car can sense when things are cheap, which is often at night or when load is much, much lower, or when it's cold or what have you, and air conditioners are not on. There are many, many advantages of having all these things. What's interesting about this is our assumptions are very modest. Amory Lovins has done a calculation where he said that if you, take, if you take the current oils per mile, which is what we're using today, which is sort of a horrific number, you improve it by a factor of two from powertrain improvements moving, to, moving to, the, to the hybrid model. You improve it by another factor of four using E85, which is an ethanol base. You use a plug-in, which gives you another factor of two. And then various platform physics give you another factor of two. He reduces the current oil per mile to 3% of the current usage. So that is perhaps the most aggressive phenomenon that I've seen, or prediction I've seen. But even if it's a factor of maybe 6% or maybe 16%, think of the impact that would have on our friendly oil suppliers, right? What do you think happens when oil demand just collapses? Prices go down. So not only do you get, in fact, less consumption, but it costs less to consume. So they both work together. It seems obvious to me. But we have to do one more thing. We have to think about the electrical grid. Now everybody says, oh, okay, yeah, the grid, the grid, the grid. You know, we remember the grid because we discovered we had one when it failed on us in 2002, 2003 around here, right? But the fact of the matter is that the grid was built in the 1960s and 70s in a completely different architecture and not using technology that we would consider to be modern, although it was really neat at the time. So if you think about grids and you think about how you want to architect them, you want them to be both smart and big and in the right places, which they're none of. It's a problem. Things have changed in 40 years. Who would have known? You want to figure out that they're smart because they can match supply and load and supply. And remember, in the, in the right smart grid, you've got all these batteries connected to it because they're sitting in the cars. So maybe they could borrow some of the charge from the battery occasionally if they get into trouble. So all of a sudden now your car is contributing to the grid in certain situations. This technology is well understood. It's in development now, and it's happening. All it takes is a will to do it and the right economics to have people recognize what they can do. And of course, you need that smart grid in order to get the benefits that we're getting from all of the hybrids and all the plug-ins and all the batteries that we're busy building. It also needs to be big, and it needs to be in the right places. There's a very significant problem that where is the wind, right? The wind is in rural places where the people are not. Well, here's another set of construction jobs, by the way. Relatively straightforward to technology to do this, and there's nobody there to object, right? <laughs> Seems pretty straightforward. Everybody loves the strategy. Let's just do it, and let's do it now. And the reason it doesn't happen, by the way, is that there's nobody in charge, that the regulatory agencies in these areas were eviscerated, that it's a hodgepodge of mom-and-pop businesses and, and sort of structurally, structurally slow businesses when there's a significant business opportunity before them. And by the way, if you do this right, sure sounds like the Internet. Right, a set of cooperating networks where the traffic flows and the power flows. People can connect anything they want. They can be a consumer as well as a producer. Well, that's something I can map to. And it created a tremendous amount of wealth for, the, for America, and I think we can do it here too. So if you think about it then, resilient micropower is a lot like a PC, 
And the new grid is a lot like the internet, the flexibility in what you can do. And of course, Google, Google has in fact announced a, a partnership with GE to do exactly this. So the reason I wanted to come and the reason I wanted to talk, aside from the fact that it's a great honor to be here, is somebody's got to start talking about this in terms that people actually care about. Jobs, energy security, oil prices, the creation of new industries. We have before us an opportunity with a little bit of work and, frankly, some pressure on the political establishment of the, of the country, which is largely wedded to historic interests for all the reasons that we know that opportunity is before us. There's a quote that I like a lot, and the quote is that, uh, it's an optimistic quote, and I'm an optimist. It's a quote about America, and I'm paraphrasing now. The quote goes, America will be enormously successful because of the inherent optimism of its people, its abundance of land, and its absence of a king. His name is de Tocqueville, he's a Frenchman who traveled around America in 1831. In thinking about the opportunity before us, the quote is exactly right. The creativity of Americans, the land and the opportunity, huge, you know, Nebraska, the, uh, the Kuwait of wind. <laughs> Sorry, that's what they call it. <laughs> East Texas, the Saudi Arabia, you know, of solar, you know, on and on. Uh, this is how it's taught. We have this. It's something that we have that a lot of other countries don't have. And we don't have a king. We do actually have a political process which is open and which has gotten us through many, many crises. If you think about the two biggest threats to the world, they're probably nuclear prolifer proliferation and climate change in terms of eventual deaths and impacts and so forth at massive, massive scales. So this talk is about the second. We can have a separate discussion about the first. But I'm quite convinced that if you follow my reasoning and if you take advantage of the technological opportunities, the funding opportunities, and the apparent willingness of the US government to write large checks in a series of crisis, <laughs> we could do this on Monday. With that, thank you very much. Thank you. Our thanks to Google Chairman and CEO Eric Schmidt for his comments at the Commonwealth Club here today. Now we have lots of questions, so let's... Uh, yeah, I think you have more questions than we're likely to have time, so I guess that's a good sign. Kind of pause for one moment while they get that off. Um, let's start with the, uh, the big picture. You mentioned uh, the lack of leadership in the financial crisis, and by the time this is on the radio around the country, there will be some bailout package. We don't know exactly what it will be like. Uh, it will be big. Uh, and there's a number of questions of how the bailout package will affect financing for green technologies, uh, it'll affect government's ability to do, uh, uh, whether it's rail systems or research, what's gonna be the crowd out effect financially of the bailout on the green tech sector? Our economy appears to be able to absorb large amounts of debt. 
Um, and I, again, we've talked a lot about this as a society. We're not net savers, we're net consumers. And my feeling is that a solution that solves the problems people really have, which are ultimately about the price of, of oil, lack of jobs, that sort of thing, price of gasoline, are the kinds of things that are likely to get approved. They need to be put in a context where politicians and citizens see them as really affecting them on a day-to-day -day basis. We can sit here and talk about long-term threats, but people live today and they're worried about jobs and their health and so forth and so on. So I'm reasonably confident that the kind of funding that I'm talking about, which is spread out over many, many years and is done with this huge payback, is achievable. And, and where would the money come from, the, the $4 trillion? Would it, would, are you suggesting debt financing? Are you suggesting, what's the funding source? Well, in the first place, much of that funding is, is actually generated from the actual savings. So it comes from a lot of places. But the simplest way to think about it is that the country today is going to end up with a stimulus package beyond the bailout, as it's called, probably a, a, on the order of $100 billion. Most right. of the politicians I've talked with have ended up in those kinds of numbers. And that money is going to go somewhere. Uh, it will go to the existing people who get such things, either in tax breaks, stimulation for businesses, or so forth. So the money is going to get appropriated. So instead of giving it to the usual suspects, let's give it with an energy slant. Mm -hmm. Tom Friedman wrote a column recently saying, green, green the bailout. So it sounds like you would direct the revenue from uh, the stimulus package to research and development? Yeah, it's important to distinguish between the bailout, which is essentially buying out the errors of the banking system okay. from a stimulus package. The bailout essentially allows the banking system to continue in their current merry way. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that we need the banks. You know, credit's drying up and so forth, so I'm not de denying the need for that. But I want to distinguish between the bailout, which is not fundamentally stimulative, and then the eventual government stimulation package. All of the people that I've talked with believe that there will be a second set of legislation where the government will do what it can to get, to get our economy moving again. And you mentioned the savings, the funding would partly come from the savings, but there needs to be upfront investment. A consumer has to buy a CFL and pay more than an incandescent and they realize the savings over time. Do you think the political system is, has the stomach right now to take the big hit up front? Well, if, if they don't, then the current mess will continue, and none of the things that I'm talking about will be addressed, and oil prices will continue to go up, energy prices will continue to go up, and we'll continue to be in danger as a country from oil, oil, and oil wars. So it seems to me that we have to have the conversation. Uh, the government spends lots and lots of money on many, many things which are very strategic. It strikes me that energy independence, given the history of the last 10 years, should be at the top of the list. Recently, when Google and GE announced an initiative on the smart grid, you, the statements talked about going to Washington and, and influencing policymakers. What are you individually and as a company doing to affect the kind of outcome that you're talking about? I think part of it is, part of it is literally just communication. Um, because people, uh, one of the principles with politicians is that they have trouble doing the math. Um, they, they can't actually add it all up partly because I think they're influenced and partly because maybe they're not very good with math. And so you need to show the real costs of these things. In our program, for example, um, we've actually tried to show the cost, for example, of trying to get old cars off the road and replacing them by renewables. We understand that's a strategic cost. We've put that in. 
Again, you can check that when you look at it on our website. So we've tried to understand the true life cycle costs of these approaches. You've talked about uh, the lack of leadership as a primary reason this isn't happening. What are some of the other obstacles that are in the way of, of wind and, and solar, solar power? Uh, transmission is clearly one, and transmission is not in places where it, where it needs to be. So what do you, if you want to knock down some barriers, what would they be? The, the biggest one turns out to be the grid. Uh, there's tremendous activity now people buying plots of land in these appropriately, and by the way, the, I didn't show the map here because of the format, but there, there are maps which show areas that are suitable for wind and suitable for solar and suitable for enhanced ge geothermal, by the way, which is almost everywhere. Um, and they're massive. They're millions of square miles of land. And, that, and the best land is being purchased now by speculative developers who believe that they can, in fact, make money if not now, over the next few years, as these technologies get there. So I think the private capital is beginning to see the math. The problem is they can't also bear the cost of developing their own private transmission lines. And so we need a, a coordinated plan to get the transmission grid built out to the right way. That's probably the biggest impediment. Uh, in most of the cases, the build-outs are welcomed by the local politicians. They're welcomed at the state level for all the reasons that are obvious. The technology itself works. Uh, the one that is the most speculative is enhanced, um, sorry, is the uh, geothermal. But even there, the smaller sites are working. There's a question as to how big the sites can be and how long they last and uh, the rock formations and so forth. That research is going on. But certainly for the first two, which are solar and wind, there's no question that technology works today. On Friday, I was here in conversation with Governor Schwarzenegger, and he announced a, a summit of governors from around the world in Los Angeles. Uh, next month, and his premise was, like yours, it's not happening in Washington, but governors and states can make things happen. So when it comes to the grid, electricity and the infrastructure goes across state boundaries. Can states tackle this problem? And we've seen tremendous leadership from Go Governor Schwarzenegger and a number of the other Western governors, for example, on some of these grid issues. The problem is that the money is in Washington. Uh, they're also the only people who can fundamentally create the credit markets and the debt markets that are needed to finance some of this stuff over a long period of time. So the fact of the matter is that we, that in, in every case, if you go back to the creation of the national highway system, the creation of the internet, so forth and so on, there was a very major and very significant federal role for many reasons, not just standards, which is what we always talk about, but the fact of the matter is it's where the money is. And do you think how do you think it will change after the election? There's a couple questions here about whether you have been talking to uh, Senators McCain and Obama, and do you think that the leadership and the money will come forth after the election? Um, we're in the silly season in the presidential election, so these four weeks, uh, th these four weeks, I'm not sure one makes progress on any sort of longer-term things. Uh, so uh, we've talked to both campaigns. I, in pers I personally have talked to the Obama campaign. Um, both leading candidates have talked about these areas uh, and you can sort of read their policy prescriptions and you can decide which, which you think has a stronger role, but both are at least aware of it. They both have also said they're afraid of a cap and trade system to put a price on carbon and how important is that and, and how do you see that evolving over the next year? There's some people concerned that the U.S. may not put a federal cap and trade system in place and how important is that? Well, again, if, it, if, if cap and trade is explained as a price increase, it won't work. If it's 
explained as a way of rationalizing a market, then it will work, which is why the tax, the, the, the term tax just is not going to work politically. Uh, there are bills, as, as you know, um, in the Senate, for example, that in fact enact cap and trade in the United States. In Europe, they already have uh, systems of this type. And uh, it's pretty clear to me that there will be one because smart people are beginning to understand that, that the unregulated generation of sort of inexpensive, the inexpensive generation of, of carbon emissions, in particular CO2, um, is really a long-term externality for all of us. It really does affect us. Um, and enough people are beginning to say that the seasons end earlier, the migratory patterns are changing, uh, people who live near glaciers have noticed they don't live near glaciers anymore. Uh, people are noticing that the weather is changing. So, so the, the discussion about, the discussion is no longer, is this happening, but what to do about it. And any reasonable policy prescription is going to require something like a cap and trade or a carbon tax or some other way to try to capture the externality or the third party impact of people who are just indiscriminately generating this thing that is one of the two great threats to, to the world. And I think, by the way, that eventually, uh, certainly in our lifetimes, this will be the major diplomatic issue around the world, simply because we have to do it, but everybody else to do it as well. You mentioned bills in Congress. Uh, the primary bill uh, actually was defeated in June in large part. You mentioned- Big surprise. Uh, yeah. Uh, you mentioned the failure of leadership in political circles, but there's also a lot of business people who lobbied very hard against it because they don't see the math the way you do. They see cost, they see hassle, they see change. Uh, and that's continuing. Uh, I guess I have a, a bias in favor of business people who can sort of figure out the true cost of things. And I think most businesses most businesses, when they do the math correctly, will see that, over, that, they, that the sum is a positive one. The problem is that there are some costs that really are borne by the society and not by its individuals. And the reason that you need a cap and trade or something like that is to address that. There really is a need for regulation in this one area. And so, for example, coal companies, you think with uh, tax, you, you said it's a joke, but you think that they'll come around? I mean, one, one question well, here. Well, obviously, obviously if, if carbon sequestration for coal actually worked, right, as opposed to just in the lab and in trials, that would change you know, our view of whether coal is appropriate or not. But as long as coal remains one of the primary contributors to global warming, which it appears to be today, and there's a lot of evidence that that's true, we really have to be careful about building more coal plants. And people who write arguments saying, well, these are like you know, uh, uh, tree huggers, the problem is look around you. Right? There's something causing all these changes. And a reasonable selection of su suspects includes the, the, the coal-fired plants, which are being built at a relatively rapid rate around the world because coal is relatively plentiful, and it's extremely bad from a climate change perspective without these new technologies, which again are not proven to the point where they can be invested in mass, although we hope that they will. Silicon Valley is known for attacking and disrupting lots of uh, entrenched uh, industries, whether it's technology, publishing, uh, et cetera. The utility industry is an animal unto itself. It's, it's, it's capital intensive, it's heavily regulated, insulated from, from competition. Is there a role for entrepreneurial entry into utility markets? Well, one of the most interesting things about this model is it opens up much of the utility market to new forms of power generation because the sources of power generation are more distributed. And we know from a lot of technology that having more distributed sources basically gives us more redundancy. So you sit there and you say, well, I think solar 
I think, I think wind is a terrible idea because the wind doesn't blow all the time. Well, by the way, it's blowing on the wind somewhere in the US all the time. There's never been a moment when the US has been completely becalmed, right? <laughs> so the fact of the matter is, with the right grid and the right kind of smart stuff, we can take something which is intermittent and turn it into something which is continuous. It's a question from one member of our audience here who says that someone Wall Street uh, critique Google for taking uh, for going basically into uh, beyond their expertise and into energy. So what do you say to people who ask about how this fits into your strategy? You mentioned you're a big consumer. Um, well, again, talk about short-sighted. Why don't we work on the important problems in the world? I think that's my answer. Seems like a pretty important problem. I mean, and by the way, we, <laughs> right? I mean, and by the way, Again, speaking to, to shareholders in the audience, we save a lot of money when prices go down. Good for shareholders, good for earnings. Always good. You mentioned oil prices. What if oil prices drop below 100, that either because of uh, demand softens or something like that, does that really change the economics of your model? If, if people don't buy as many hybrids, they go back to SUVs? It, it appears in our, anal in our analysis it actually makes it better because the savings are higher. Right, because all the numbers get smaller. So relative, relative to, the, to the sort of current model of what we're spending, you just get more savings. Um, of course, the fact that, that if, if oil prices were to collapse to their historic lows of a, few, of a couple decades ago, uh, consumers would behave and they start buying Hummers again and that sort of stuff. But the fact of the matter is that in the long run, these are non-renewable, which means the prices go up. When you're running out of something, eventually prices go up. There may be supply imbalances and so forth. And there's a lot of evidence that we've largely hit the maximum production points of many of these technologies, certainly in oil we have, that the cost of recovery in, gets increasingly higher just from a technological perspective. So for all of those reasons, the long-term trend, and maybe this is worth saying, independent of whether the price of the gas is $5 or $4 or $3, the long-term trend of your gas prices is up because we're running out of it. And over, again, your lifetime, this will clearly be true. So you subscribe to peak oil? Well, I think that the, the math says that, we, that we're past that and that, of course, technology is, is moving forward and people are learning how to, to, to bring in more. Here we are, we're having this amazing political discussion about drilling offshore, which will add a half a percent more oil supply in five years? Or did I get it too optimistically? I'm sorry, I may have been too optimistic. There's some math out there that says, uh, cons some conservative economists who said that it won't affect the price much of a global market. However, they put forward the proposition that still the revenue and the taxes may be worth extracting the value if you can do good things with those taxes. Would you be for offshore oil why drilling? Don't, why don't you just invest in jobs, people paying taxes to create industries that we can export out of the US, right? I mean, this argument is just, I mean, give me a break. This is a legitimate economist. I'm not gonna vouch for it. It's something I read. I mean, come on, guys. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we have, we, have, we have hundreds of thousands of jobs that are land-based, not off-water, so they're a lot easier to get to, right? <laughs> Near your town, right? With an awful lot of people who are very talented who don't have much to work on right now because we're not investing in what they do. Yeah, for his part, when the governor was here on Friday, he reaffirmed his personal opposition to uh, 
to drill, baby, drill. Uh, can you talk about Google's patent for an offshore tidal powered data center? We're actually, we actually, you know, we, we have to think about risk. And we're, you know, after global warming is complete and the country is like underwater, we want the data center still working. <laughs> so you're, uh, you're, uh, you're planning ahead. Uh, we, we do actually think for the long term at Google. So the plug-in hybrids will float. I'm more concerned about the data centers, because without the data centers, Google's okay. like nothing. Okay. There, people have observed that the people, the users, also have to be on boats for this scenario to work. Right. So maybe right. we should invest in that, too. We have a question here about, uh, we often think about clean tech as a way for the US to compete while solving the, the climate challenge. But we also want developing countries to develop. Is this a zero-sum game the US should win? Or will the rising tide lift all boats? Again, there's this, somehow there's this negativism about this kind of stuff. Don't you think it's good that India and China are joining the 21st century in terms of wealth, prosperity, cultural obsession with Britney Spears, all those sorts of things that everybody cares about? I mean, it's wonderful. These people are coming out. In one generation, they've gone from pretty significant po poverty to being significant players with significant middle classes. Right, of people who want roughly the same things we do. So if we can set a standard and a model, they're going to like our model, and they're going to figure out their own model, but they're going to ultimately discover that our argument is roughly correct. So I don't believe that technology is a zero-sum game. I believe that, that ability and innovation is distributed globally, including, including places that, are, that have historically had a lot of trouble, like Africa, and that with technology and with the right kind of uh, global view, that we can actually help create jobs, help increase prosperity, and by the way, get access to the smartest people in the world, whichever country they live in. That's, all, that's what Google's about, it's what the internet is about, I think it's what about modern American society should be about. And the fact of the matter is that if we build these export markets, people benefit because they buy our stuff, okay? It's great, and by, they'll build interesting things on top of it because they're smart too. You mentioned China. There's a question here about uh, Warren Buffett recently invested uh, $230 million to buy 10% of a company that makes electric batteries for, for cars that they say are going to come into uh, the United States in, in 2010. Do you think we're going to see some uh, re revision of what we saw from Japan that sort of green cars may come from overseas, from countries that we haven't considered well, technology leaders? You, you know, America is in a financial crisis, so maybe the Latin Americans can sort of bail us out. Uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is that, that this, in a global stage, the other countries have technology, they have ideas, and so forth, and it's a race. And it's a separate conversation, but we need to get ourselves ready for that. We need to focus on science and, and, uh, science and education, analytical training, make sure that we're competitive globally, and so forth. We can't keep our heads in the sand. Um, in this particular case, China is doing a very good job of understanding process improvements around key technologies in this area. We should view that as a competitive challenge and a friendly one, right? One, and if we invest in these things and they invest, we'll learn from each other. We benefit from each other. We'll use theirs and theirs will use ours. The worst scenario, and again, Tom Friedman talks about this, other people have talked about this, is that we continue to ignore this and all of these new technologies and all of the manufacturing know-how gets built in countries that are not the United States. And that impoverishes us in many, many ways at an educational level, at an intellectual property level, at a process level, at a manufacturing level, and I think at a cultural level. 
Question here about tools. Google's good at building lots of useful tools. Are you working on tools that help individual consumers understand their energy consumption? As part of our collaboration with General Electric, we're actually designing some approaches for that. Um, and it seems obvious to me that if you give information to end users, they behave smartly. So we, we're, we're working on that. There are some very, very interesting smart meter projects uh, in utilities around the country that we've been looking at. And I think one of the consequences of the smart grid model is that you'll have much, much more information about your own personal use and so forth. And, and Google wants to do our part. And obviously, we have a great uh, reach for consumers and a good way of building is that we want to do that part. Another question here about tools for governments to help uh, county and state governments understand these complex issues. We actually have a, a large virtual government project um, because governments do whatever the legislation told them to do, and often without an understanding of the scale and scope and what people are really doing. Um, America is good in that we have a, cult, a, a culture of transparency in government. And uh, a number of people have called for even greater transparency. There are, for example, laws that require the, public, the publishing already of budgets and so forth that are web indexable and so forth. Uh, we have a series of initiatives. The best one, by the way, is in actually in, in, with the state of Alabama, uh, where a, a team that's, uh, that we worked with, was very clever people who live there, actually built a set of tools where you can watch what the government does, how it's spending its time, and how you can look at land use, money, those sorts of things. And it's fascinating. And I think in the new world where um, citizens are empowered at a level that they've never really been before, government will get used to being transparent. Government will get used to having people who really know how government is working, and citizens will keep their government honest, which is a great thing about the United States. Google recently turned 10 years old. Uh, and when Google turns 20, what percentage of the company do you think will be in these revenues will be in this energy area? I can't predict next week at Google, <laughs> so the concept of, of 10 years. We have been debating what are the business opportunities for Google in this area. And I think right now we would answer the question that our primary mission is one of information. And to the degree that we can be in the information businesses or communication businesses about energy and its impact on the world, we're clearly going to be there. As to whether we're in these other businesses, we will see. In many cases, we can be a catalyst. Uh, we've already said that we've put $45 million, more than $45 million, in a series of investments to try to stimulate this. But in our internal discussions, sometimes we debate whether we should be in the business or whether we should just be an incredibly smart consumer and provide a market for some of the really creative firms, many of which, by the way, are here in the Bay Area. Uh, and really provide that market and really be willing to give them some risk capital and help them along. The hardest money to get in a company is the first money when you're not proven at all. So if we can use a little bit of our, you know, frankly, large bank account to help them off and ultimately benefit the world and make some money at the same time, it's a good deal. Question here asking you to enhance, uh, to elaborate on enhanced geothermal. It's availability and in time to market. Um, as I mentioned, there are a series of smaller geothermal fields which are generating um, sort of in the, how to describe it, um, relatively small numbers of megawatts. Um, they're limited by depth and by not really understanding what happens over time with these sort of fields. What happens is you put the 
put the water in, you send it through the, through the hot rocks, and it comes back out again. So people are trying to understand the, the sort of, and that, that is the current sort of work. There are a number of much larger proposals. They're more expensive. Um, there are people who are now learn, using the, and I was having some fun with the drilling people, but basically there's a tremendous amount of information known from oil fields and shale fields about what happens under you know, some number of feet. Um, and today, for example, there are a number of companies that will sell you for your home essentially thermal pumps that use this technology at a shallower level. So it's the same idea, but at a much, much greater depth. Ultimately, these are, if these things work at scale, they'll be deeper and bigger, and they'll be hugely, hugely generative, uh, literally using the, the power that's underneath your feet. Question here about Europe. Uh, does, is there stronger leadership in Europe? How is it that Germany, a country with far less sunlight than California, has become a leader in solar energy? I think culturally they're very different. Uh, as we all know, Europe, Europe has had uh, much higher gasoline prices for many years. They have less of the kind of abundance of land that I was talking about, uh, and they're more crowded and so forth and so on. We all know this. So as a result, they've had uh, much higher uh, taxes on oil. Their cars are at the efficiency standards. Today, in our plan, we model for 2030. So in many ways, they're already there. And of course, they're much more regulated for the reasons that are just different in, in culture. Uh, and so another, another and a rather more pragmatic argument is that climate change and the temperature change that is, a pro, that is associated with that is more pronounced at the poles. And if you take a globe, you discover that Germany is not, not lateral to us. They're actually quite north. Um, it was always a surprise. You know, when I used to go, this is like, wow. Um, and the, and the uh, Gulf Stream and so forth moderates the temperature. But the fact of the matter is that the effects of climate change on Europe are going to be much more dramatic, much earlier, and they have a much greater crisis than we do. Uh, I'm not suggesting that's good for us. I think it's bad, bad for, both, for both groups. Uh, and so they've been forced to act more quickly. Uh, Denmark, uh, because they have no supplies of anything except for nice people, uh, it's, it's the happy, Denmark's the happiest country in, in, the, in the world, right? Uh, ni nice people in Denmark now basically enacted a set of laws about 10 years ago, so 20% of their power now comes from uh, wind farms. So I was recently there, and I'm flying, flying over the land, and of course they reclaim everything, uh, and it's w these enormously interesting wind farms out in the middle of the sea, uh, which are spinning because it's windy. Our guest at the Commonwealth Club today is Google Chairman and CEO Eric Schmidt discussing sustainable energy. I'm Greg Dalton. Number of questions about China and India, whether they will follow. You just sort of inserted that. The, uh, for our radio audience, so they, people who tune in, um, in case you all forgot where you are. Who you're talking to. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you are listening to Channel 13. Yes, yes. A uh, number of questions here about China and India, whether you're optimistic, whether they will sort of uh, evade, avoid some of the dirty stages of development that, that, that the West went through, if they can leapfrog, say, to electric cars or some of these clean technologies. Uh, the report is mixed. Uh, in China, the government, we spent a fair amount of time talking to them, is much more aware of this problem than the US government. And because they're not exactly that democratic, they have a lot more control over what happens. Uh, that's the good news, I guess. 
the, the bad news is that their growth rate and the issues and the legacy of the rule and the decisions is horrific uh, from the standpoint of pollution, lifestyle, impact on the citizens, and, and so forth. I think a fair reading of China is that China will develop significant clean energy industries because it's good for business. They will deploy them internally because it's also good for business and good for the country. Um, and that at some point, the math that I'm talking about will become true for the Chinese as well. It's not obvious to me that it is today. And in any case, uh, in their most recent uh, multi-year plan, they've actually put in climate goals at the regional level. Uh, there's concern that even though the regional budgets are correct, that the control over the local budgets is not as tight because it's not a very transparent society, and that people are, in fact, evading those. So I think that uh, a, a, a sort of a sophisticated view of the Chinese government would say that the senior leaders understand this, that they've taken the appropriate action for where they are, but that China is a very large country and a very complicated one, and it's not obvious that, that everyone's gotten the message yet. And that's a big opportunity. If, if we don't, together, working with them, helping them, them helping us, um, an example is that about a third of the particulate pollution that's over California comes from Beijing. So when you look up, about a third of that comes from China. Pretty amazing. And we often hear that they're building, what, one coal power plant a week. And Fareed Zakaria from Newsweek was with us recently and said that the amount of coal coming online in China and India is a multiple of all the Kyoto savings. And, and again, this coal problem and this euphemism of clean coal is really a problem. Because once those coal plants get built, it's very, very difficult to shut them down, even under all of the assumptions. So it's better not to build them. China has other problems. They have extremely significant water problems. Um, and a, again, a fair reading of the climate change issue is that ultimately the thing that will cause people to treat it at the same level of crisis that we're treating our banking crisis is actually going to be water. That literally fresh water supplies are significantly affected by climate change, and people need fresh water to live, and ultimately you could have water wars. Uh, and in fact, there's some evidence that this is already beginning to occur. We've reached the point where we have just one last question. And this one here, you talked about a failure of leadership, uh, political leadership in the United States. And this person wants to know whether you ever would consider yourself entering the political arena. Thank you very much for that very flattering. And the answer is, hell no. <laughs> Thank you very much. Our thanks. <laughs> Our thanks to Eric Schmidt, Chairman and CEO of Google, for his comments here today at the Commonwealth Club of California. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, celebrating a century of civic discussion, is adjourned. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.